Coming up on Verse Course Verse, the rivalry of two men is directly responsible for, I don't know, all of the music that I love. Let's talk about it next. Only seven hours, only seven days, only seven months, the seventh doctor said he was born for good luck. Hey, a verse, chorus, verse. How's it going? DL here. This is verse, chorus, verse. You're not verse, chorus, verse. I feel like I'm addressing you differently. Hello, everyone. Verse, chorus, universe, whatever. I am DL, and I'm here by myself. How's it going? It is a little cold, but I'm doing all right other than that. Just got home from from DC actually I've never been to DC very cool place I only got about a half day to see the sights uh it was a gorgeous day over there and that was fun Lincoln Memorial who would have known it's pretty freaking cool right but I'm home now I'm nice and comfortable got a two-day recording ahead of me one by myself I'm doing now and tomorrow night I get to talk to my buddy Sven looking forward to that But for now, it's just me, and I'm okay with it, because I get to talk, uh, man, I've kind of been spoiling myself with these solo episodes. It's a lot of research, so I'd imagine the rest of the team is okay with not having to do them with me. Uh, We've touched on it a lot this year, but everybody is very busy. My job has become pretty insane. Evil's job is incredibly insane. Uh, Sven's always insane. And uh, Rachel, it seems, is extremely busy, too. They're, everybody's uh, half MIA this year. Everybody's moved on. It's so sad. But we do still get to meet every now and then and talk about music. And that's what matters. As you've been watching through the beginning of this season, we have done a lot of going way back when, talking a lot about the 60s and the 50s and the 40s and the 30s. A lot of old jazz performances, a lot of, we did the pre-1964, we did all that, we did Barry on Top. We are really, really trying to get a good grasp on the start of rock and roll. And boy, who would have thought there is a lot to cover, a whole heck of a lot to cover. And I'm going to try to take a big chunk out of that today. I think this is going to be one of the last old school ones that we're going to have. I think this is the end of our let's go deep into the history of rock this year. It's been really fun. I've learned and had so much fun learning about these people, about these Billie Holidays and Ronnie Spector and the Ronettes and everybody. It's just been a blast. There's so much interesting history there. And the two gentlemen I'm going to talk about tonight are definitely no exception. It is incredibly intriguing to read about them, to watch videos about them, to understand what they were going through in that time. A very, very different world than I have ever known. And I'm looking forward to talking about it a little bit. Pasta, pasta, podcast, uh, been super fun so far this year. Got to do some quick fires. I got to do a little bit of recording from Ireland. That was cool. Talking about the Cranberries from Ireland was very, very cool. We've got another interview coming up in two episodes. Extremely excited about that one. That was a great interview to do. We actually did that a while back, uh, but it was a blast. I'm looking forward to uh, you guys getting to listen to that one. That was really fun. We did the Metallica Live. The Metallica Live was a lot of fun. Recorded some YouTubes. Did all that stuff. It's been real. I've been listening. My, I have a feeling that my Spotify is extremely crazy eclectic this year. I think there's a lot of new rock. I think there's a lot of jazz. I think there's a lot of hip hop. You know, studying and listening to Tupac and Notorious B.I.G. this year, you know what I ended up doing? I've ended up listening to a lot of Tupac and B.I.G. this year. It's been fun. There are a few things more fun than walking through an airport listening to Notorious B.I.G. and just unceremoniously feeling like a badass for no particular reason when you're definitely not. It's good times. 
good times had by all. The only thing that sucks about being so busy and, you know, being in a, a responsible adult and all that is what I've been missing a lot lately now that I'm really just trying to soak in as much music as I can everywhere is live performances. I have not been to any live performances this year. Uh, quite the bummer. I really need to remedy that. I just don't, I don't have the time and the energy. Once you get older, look, I live in Vancouver, which is next door to Portland. But once you do get older, that next door to Portland feels like freaking a continent away. It totally does. You start thinking about the drive and the parking and the drive back and how tired you're going to be and crossing the freaking bridge from Vancouver to Portland and how bad the traffic's going to be and how late you're going to get home and you're going to smell like this. So you're going to have to take a shower. That's what you think of when you're my age. It's really sad, uh, but I need to uh, get over that because I need to see some live performances. I definitely plan on seeing a couple this year for sure. And then there are some specific bands that they need to come to Portland. I need to see them. I missed a chance to see the Crows come last year, which was one of the bigger disappointments of my year. But hey, I'll live, especially if they come back. Please come back. I have a lot to talk about with these, uh, with what I am going to talk about tonight. So I'm just going to get into it. I got to start with the most important part of the night. What am I drinking This is actually the first episode I've recorded since I'm done with my dry spell, since I stopped drinking for a little over a month. And just to be a pain in the ass, I'm not going to drink. I'm drinking coffee, I'm drinking water, and that's it. There are two reasons for that. Number one, I just don't really feel like it. Don't really feel like having a drink tonight. I've been not at home. I'm going to go hang out with my daughter tonight. We're going to play around. You know, I want to be in top form. Also, tomorrow, I'm recording with Sven. So I figure, what better way to ceremoniously celebrate having a cocktail and talking about music than uh, ending my dry spell with Sven? It just seems fitting to me. So tomorrow night, when I record, I will definitely have a couple cocktails. But tonight, it's just coffee. That's it. What are we doing tonight? Here's what I have decided to talk about. I had decided about a year ago that I needed to do an episode on Muddy Waters. Muddy Waters has always been one of my favorite artists. He is always where I pinpointed blues meets rock and roll, the start of the Delta meets Chicago blues. I initially just, I wanted to go as far back as I possibly could, which I slowly am realizing that it's borderline and impossible. We'll talk about it later, but what you realize is everybody has their influences. You know, Muddy Waters has very specific influences who had very specific influences. And maybe eventually, maybe if this podcast ends up making some good money and we go for 20 years, I can touch on, basically we can all go all the way back to 1850. I don't know. I really wanted to start at Muddy Waters. I wanted that to be the beginning. And so I started studying him. And learning a ton and loving it, obviously, it's been a blast. But as I did, I would also end up hearing about Howlin' Wolf in half the stories that were about Muddy Waters. This wasn't, I'm not saying that, oh, I found Howlin' Wolf. I know Howlin' Wolf. I love Howlin' Wolf. But I didn't realize just how much their stories intercept, which... Some of you, I'm sure, are saying, how could you not know that? I just never, I never really studied it. Just being honest, hey, you know, I'm not smart guy number one. I don't know everything. You know, a lot of the stuff we talk about, I have to research. I'm not some freaking music savant or anything like that. It just intrigues me. It just super interests me. And that's why I love when any of you write in and we can talk about music and talk about whatever group you want to talk about. But the point of it is, About halfway through, I was actually getting ready to record the Muddy Waters episode and there was something missing. I just felt like there was something I didn't have, you know, the bit, the big heart of the story. It it was too easy to just say, look, Muddy Waters is the king. Muddy Waters founded Delta Blues. He's the reason we have everything. It was too easy. And so eventually I stopped and I realized, why don't I just incorporate Howlin' Wolf. And as soon as I thought of that and really, really started dissecting their childhoods, 
their story. It very quickly Tetris itself together. So that's what I'm doing. That's what I've decided to do is I'm not just talking about Muddy Waters or Howl and Wolf. We're going to talk about both of them. We're going to talk about their similarities. We're going to talk about what made them different. We're going to talk about why those two being artists at the same time ended up being the, what do you want to call it? The irresistible force meets an immovable object. Kaboom. The Big Bang happens. Big Bang being your Chuck Berries and your, uh, which... Chuck Berry ties in perfectly to the story of Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf. So I'm going to get into it. I'm going to talk some Muddy. I'm going to talk some Howlin'. Two of the baddest motherfuckers that ever lived. After I take a break, we'll be right back. If you see me running, I'll come freaking by. You better run, boy. All right, y'all, I am back. I'm still young to die. You still with me? Great. Let's talk a little Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf, shall we? Let's talk a little McKinley Morganfield and Chester Arthur Burnett. So, stop me if you've heard this one before. Let's talk about our first gentleman. Born in Mississippi in the early 1900s. Died in Illinois because Chicago, you know what I mean? Grew up near on around working a plantation, had some family issues, moved house to house, ended up kind of moving on, having to do their own thing where they very, very slowly worked their way through. So my point with this is that both of these dudes upbringings are extremely similar. That could have been said about either man. I'm going to start with McKinley Morganfield. I'm going to start with Muddy Waters, who I did not know had a second nickname that people would randomly call him Dirty Rivers. I think that's funny. I don't know if that's just a joke or what. I don't know. I kind of like that. McKinley Morganfield, Muddy Waters, born in 1913. He was three years younger than Helen Wolf, but got started a little bit earlier. So Muddy Waters' mom died at a very young age. This is another one of those. I talked a lot about it with Billie Holiday where there aren't exacts on a lot of things there. It has not yet been even proven his date of birth and his place of birth are not conclusively known is still technically an unknown. He has said that he's from Rolling Fork, but the Mississippi records say that he's from Issaquina County Anyway, he was born in 1913. The overwhelming evidence goes toward April 4th of 1913. As I said, three years older than older than Helen Wolf. His dad and his mom worked a plantation. His mom died very, very quickly after his birth. I couldn't find why. It doesn't matter. People probably don't know. But he ended up living with his grandmother. His grandmother's name was Della Grant. Uh, she did a good job of raising him, but it was kind of a lot of the same stuff that that I talked about with Billy Holiday again, where, you know, he was into music. He was a little bit of a troublemaker in a, in an innocent way. He loved playing harmonica and all that, but he was really good about, you know, his, his grandmother and him belonged to the church. They'd sing in the church and it was Southern Baptist church. It was black Southern Baptist. So there was a lot of the very passionate singing and the very intense folk songs he was in love with it. He was completely in love with the music and was growing up on a plantation. So during the whole plantation raising, his dad was actually known fairly well for his musical talent, but his dad was also, he was a field worker. He was a mule skinner. You know, he was doing what everybody was doing back in the 1910s and then what every single black American was having to do in the 1910s and the 1920s. By the time, uh, one of the things that we've done a lot this year uh, is try to figure out how to separate the art from the artist. Just try to, you know, we had a big talk on Kanye West, had a lot of difficult conversation when we talked about Chuck Berry, but a lot of this stuff is so easy. And this is, this is a big problem that I have with everybody nowadays, including us. I am... 
I don't love the avenue that that our Chuck Berry episode went down. I don't. And the reason that I don't is because it's so easy for us as a society, and it's why it's happening, because it's easy to look back at all these artists, to look at all these people's lives and dissect it under a microscope and say, well, that person's a bad person. Well, that person did this. This person is a bad person. It's really easy to do. So we do it. We all do it. And I'm kind of sick of it. I understand people can be horrible people. And I understand that in the 1910s, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, a lot of these people did bad things, but I don't think that that's what defines them. I think there's a product of your environment, a product of the times. I don't think that nowadays that's looked at close enough. We, these people who've had very, very easy lives in comparison to probably 99% of any other person that's ever existed, living in our houses, in these lovely communities, with our kids going to great schools, working our great jobs, we're going to judge Chuck Berry on shit he's done. The, the reason I bring that up is because there are parts of Muddy Waters' life that I'm not going to go over. And the reason I'm not going to go over is because I don't think it's necessary. I don't think it has anything to do with the art. He was not, he was not great to the ladies. I'll say that he, uh, was very much a, when you think of rock star, Muddy Waters was a rock star. He was not a one woman man. He was not a, a gentleman. I'll say that. I'm interested in the art, and if I'm supposed to talk about that other crap and I don't, and you're mad, just write me and let me know. But I'm I'm sick of having to defend music that I like because an artist did something really shitty back in the 50s when it was okay to do shitty things. Yeah, it's just extremely easy for us to judge everybody else. One of the reasons that I bring this up now, besides the fact that I'm not going to go over that stuff, I will talk about it in contrast because Howlin' Wolf was such a different guy than Muddy Waters was, which is funny because their music was very different in the opposite directions. I know that that is murky, but I will explain that later. One of the things that we have to remember when going through what we're talking about with these guys is these guys grew up in plantations. They grew up on plantations, sorry. These guys, yes, slavery was over, but... This was still Mississippi in the fucking 20s, 30s, and 40s. This was horrible shit. Muddy Waters, by the age of three, was working cotton fields. Once slavery had been abolished, black people didn't suddenly... like. I know I'm saying this like everybody listening doesn't already know this, but it's not like black people suddenly, all right, here's your house and here's your job and have fun at school. You know, these guys couldn't go to school. These guys weren't allowed to do... these. The only thing these guys were allowed to do is be sharecroppers, which was essentially just... We're going to let you live on my land as a plantation owner. You're going to work from sunrise to sundown in a cotton field making shit, if anything. And we're going to let you live. You get to live, you get to eat, and that's your story as a human. And that's where both these guys got their start. Muddy Waters grew up on a plantation picking up fucking cotton daily. The only thing that brought Muddy Water solace was the gospel music that he would get to sing, was the blues that he would get to discover. Helen Wolf was 6'3", like 290. Helen Wolf, Muddy Waters, these were big fucking dudes that worked their asses off their whole life. These were fucking, this wasn't some, there's this view of musicians and musicians and they figure it out. They, they work a loophole around the system to where they don't have to work hard. They get to just do music for a living. Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf worked fucking plantations. Muddy, even when they didn't, even once Muddy Waters got up to Chicago, he was still working in factories, which was an insane thing to him. The fact that once he got to Chicago and he got a factory job, which is still an incredibly tough, low-paying job, he was ecstatic because it was a nine to, like, he didn't understand the concept of a nine to five job. You came in at nine o'clock, you got to take a lunch break, you got off at five. These were concepts that in the South were not a thing. They didn't exist. So these were big, tough, angry guys. And that's where the blues come from. 
if you there's a great interview with Howlin' Wolf, which I maybe I can try to find it. Like a, there's a recording, and maybe I can get the rights to play it. But he's explaining the blues. A lot of people's wondering what is the blues. I hear a lot of people saying the blues, the blues. But I'm gonna tell you what the blues is. When you ain't got no money, you got the blues. When you ain't got no money to pay your house rent, you still got the blues. A lot of people holler about, I don't like no blues, but when you ain't got no money and can't pay your house rent and can't buy you no food, you damn sure got the blues. If you ain't got no money, you got the blues, because you're thinking evil. Anytime you're thinking evil, you're thinking about the blues. Insane, you know, you don't have any money. You can't house and you know what's coming that's that's the blues that's where the blues comes from and and that was derived from slave songs that i mean they are one generation removed from slavery they are one generation removed from people that were singing songs like nobody knows the trouble i've seen you know down in the river to pray these songs that all these field workers had written to kind of it's not like they had HR to complain to. They sang these songs to remind themselves what they were living for and to remind themselves to hear one man in an interview in a uh, Muddy Waters documentary I watched explain that it was kind of a way to, it was a little bit of a middle finger to the slave owners and the people that were watching them work their crops as they'd let them sing these songs that were basically talking about these devils are gonna get theirs in the end and we're gonna go to heaven. Blues is black man's music. Its rhythm and the style of its vocal expression are derived from African forms. Its harmonies and chord sequences are based on old British ballads and white Protestant hymn tunes. The end product is unique. It comes directly from the people who sing it. The blues, you know, uh, is a story. A story of life. But it all depends on the life we live. And uh, but down south, most of them made up their songs as they went along. And uh, if uh, he was catching a mule to work with or something and uh, the mules that he hadn't been working with he maybe his shoulder was so from pulling the plow or pulling a heavy load or something like this this is how these type of songs was made and he would get to thinking about his mule got shoulder so and all like this and he just make a song maybe the song would go something like this see uh, he walk out there and say, Ooh, I done plowed old bell. You know I can't find a mule. Musically, the blues has evolved a long way from songs like this. A pain of lost love, loneliness, misfortune, oppression, hard times. These troubles which black people hope to leave behind in Mississippi stayed with them in Chicago. Which, which I would just love that to be true. Um, so when they first started the blues, these songs were just, that's why there's so much feeling and meaning behind them. And which is why they're so good. So Helen Wolf, much in the same vein of Muddy Waters, was born he was born Chester Arthur Burnett in 1910, so three years older than Muddy Waters. He was from White Station, Mississippi. Same concept, same delta. He said that his father was Ethiopian, but I couldn't find proof. There was some talk of that he had Choctaw in his ancestry. I think like Wikipedia said it was Choctaw, but then I saw that he said Ethiopian, I it's the same thing. I don't think people really knew. His parents separated, and they were really, really young. They were farm laborers in the Mississippi Delta. It's the same thing. Eventually, Helen Wolf was kicked out at a very young age because he refused to work fields, the cotton picking, all that stuff. He had a big 
problem doing it. And it's not like he was the first one. A lot of people had problems doing it, but his mother and his grandmother wouldn't deal with that. They were very much, if you aren't going to work, you're going to get out. Uh, he ended up with his uncle, who was very, very abusive. He finally got out of that, and he ended up with his dad, where his dad was actually a really good father, and he ended up having a real healthy childhood once he got to his dad with his father. He worked hard, and that's where he started getting the music figured out. Same thing with him. He started singing at a Baptist church and hanging out with it. His dad had a bunch of other kids, so, but in a he ended up having fun. He had brothers and sisters, and, and that's where music became a thing for him. So let's get to the good stuff now. How did Muddy Waters, how did Howlin' Wolf get into blues? How did they get into blues? Well, in order to understand them getting into blues, you have to go back to their influences. And this is where I was talking about at the beginning of the episode, where we could just do this for five seasons. And you know what? I'd be happy to do it. Maybe we will. I don't know. I mean, probably not next year. Next year, we have big plans. Next year is the anniversary of a gargantuan year in music, of a couple gargantuan years in music. So I think our whole season's going to be based around that. But uh, for now, let's talk about two other gentlemen. Muddy Waters, very early in his life, in his late teens, met a gentleman by the name of Joe Williams, Big Joe Williams, as he was called. A lot of people will call him the founder of Delta Blues. He played a nine string guitar, which was fairly, uh, it was not, it was way more common than it is now, but it was not common. And it sounded amazing. It's kind of where you got that, that twang from. He was only about, he only had about 10 years on Muddy, but he was one of the initial born in Mississippi, busking blues on street corners and things like that. He also played a lot of harmonica, and that was where Muddy Waters really figured out his thing. That's when he heard the other person that he saw, who was another one of the founders of blues, was Sun House. Sun House is a, probably a, a little bit more well-known than Big Joe Williams. They both should be way more well-known than they are, but Sun House was one of the first guy to do bottleneck blues. And I have a quote from Muddy Waters saying, I got stone crazy when I seen somebody run down them strings with a bottleneck. Because that's what Sunhouse would do. He would just break the Coca-Cola bottle and became essentially a slide guitarist. He said, my eyes lit up like a Christmas tree and I said that I had to learn. I sold the last horse we had, made about $15 for him, gave my grandmother seven and 50 cents. I kept seven fifty and paid about two fifty for a guitar, and the rest is blues history. All this is—it's all influences upon influences. Uh, and to learn about Big Joe Williams is really fun as well. A lot of the same aspects of the story, but but yeah, when you're looking at Big Joe Williams, you're looking at the influence—the really the primary influence for Muddy Waters uh, and Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan had found him and loved him too. And then when you're talking about Howlin' Wolf, you have to talk about how in 1930, Howlin' Wolf met Charlie Patton. Charlie Patton, who was literally called the father of Delta Blues, it's a lot of the same concepts. Also born in Mississippi. He lived most of his life there. Patton was playing at a regular place three days a week, and Howlin' Wolf would go see him every single time that he could. He'd go see him all the time, and they actually became buddies. Patton was the one who actually really taught Howlin' Wolf how to play a guitar. This is a quote from uh, Howlin' Wolf. The first piece I ever played in my life was a tune about hook up my pony and saddle up my black mare. The big thing that Muddy Waters got from Patton was Patton's passion, the way he showed passion, his showmanship. You know, if you watch video of Muddy Waters. He's just calm, cool, collected. He's the man in the room. He knows he's the man in the room. The people are going to come to him. That's how it is. When you watch Howlin' Wolf go live, Howlin' Wolf is going insane. Howlin' Wolf is, he. they're singing a lot of the same stuff. They're singing about how they are the man. They are singing about how you are not the man. I am the man. 
I will burn this place to the ground and not think twice. That's kind of what it became. You know, there's obviously there's a lot more. Actually, Howlin' Wolf's had a lot more the kind of girl you done me wrong sort of stuff that ended up being big, like Eric Clapton style. And then with Muddy Waters, there was a lot more of the like the Hoochie Coochie Man, which is the song he's most known for, which is the 12 bar blues about how when I walk in a room, the girls are going to want me. Muddy Waters sang, Muddy Waters sang a lot about sex. And Howlin' Wolf sang a lot about the You Done Me Wrong blues. But Howlin' Wolf on stage would go crazy. He'd be sticking his tongue out and he'd be wide-eyed and he'd be jerking back and forth as fast as he could and throwing his guitar around. He learned all that from Patton. There's a quote that he, a Howlin' Wolf quote is, when Patton played guitar, he would turn it backwards, forwards, he would throw it around his shoulders, he'd put it between his legs, he'd throw it in the sky. That's what I wanted to do. There were a ton of other influences at the time too. Like Delta Blues was just now becoming a big, huge thing. Thanks to like Big Joe Williams and Charlie Patton. You had uh, Ma Rainey, Lonnie Johnson, Sonny Boy Williams, who was a big harmonica influence. That harmonica sound that you associate with Delta Blues became a really big deal. And we'll talk why in a little bit, but for Muddy Waters, it was essential. It was what made Muddy Waters sound Muddy Waters. So both of them, once again, very similarly in the early 30s, find their influences and they say that, that is what I want to do with my life. And they both start the struggle of getting up to where you go for blues, you all know it, Chicago. So after they realize that's what they want to do, now they take two separate turns of life. Muddy Waters spends a lot of the next years, a lot of the mid-30s to mid-40s, he spends a lot of that time just trying to get up to Chicago. He plays and plays and plays and plays in Mississippi. He eventually does make his way up to St. Louis. He's not really successful. He tries. So St. Louis, so here's what everybody was doing back then. All of these people in the deep south were trying to get to Chicago via St. Louis. It was very, very common for people to go up to St. Louis first to earn enough money to get to St. Louis, try to get it done in St. Louis, try to earn enough money there to get up to Chicago. This was a very, very common thing. In fact, if you do study it, once people get up to St. Louis or Chicago, there are entire communities, there are blocks that are from specific neighborhoods of Mississippi. There is one block in Chicago that is all people from Issaquinna County, Mississippi. They all still kind of migrate to the exact same locations, mostly because that's just where their their cousins are, where they know somebody. This speaks a lot to how it was back then too, in that, you know, one of the reasons Muddy Waters was really successful is because he did get around a lot when he was young. He moved plantations with his grandmother when he was young from one where they were not treated well to, you know, that's, that's another thing you have to remember about these guys. This is 1920s Deep South plantation, as I discussed, picking, not only they're picking cotton from sunup to sunrise, but these guys have seen things. These guys have seen lynchings. These guys have seen terrible stuff and their work ethic and what they are willing to do to make it really comes to play here. You know, one of the reasons why so many of these people were so successful, one of the reasons why all of these influences, all of the people that created this music, that made this music a thing, that were smart enough to conceptualize what electric blues could be, this was necessity. This was the only way that they could go out and get their own because they sure as shit weren't gonna be able to be businessmen. Nobody was going to allow that. The only thing that they were allowed to do, the only place where they would be kind of ignored and let do their own thing is entertainment. And so all of these brilliant minds with this insane work ethic ended up in a lot of the same industries of entertainment. 
and muddy waters deciding at an early age along with working still along with working his ass off deciding that this is what he wants to do he gets up to st louis he doesn't like i said he doesn't really succeed he plays a lot he doesn't do that he's going back and forth essentially from st louis to mississippi actually no that's a lie i think he only went to st louis twice First time, not so successful. Second time, it was, and he did end up making it to Chicago. At this point in time, as far as Howlin' Wolf, he actually entered the military. He actually went into the U.S. Army. He was part of the 9th Cavalry, actually, part of the Buffalo Soldiers. He had a very, very, very tough time in the military. He actually ended up, I don't remember how he ended up with the job. He ended up after being with the Buffalo Soldiers, he ended up working a, like a tutor camp in Tacoma. And he was supposed to be decoding communications. Helen Wolf, like 90% of the people that came from where he came from, he was illiterate. He couldn't read. He couldn't decipher. He was never educated. He never, so he would constantly get beaten and in trouble from his instructors, from his sergeants, because he couldn't do a lot of the jobs they were trying to get him to do. He ended up having a lot of mental problems from this. He ended up having panic attacks and kind of these not embolistic fits, but these kind of uncontrollable, the the shakes, I guess is what you could call it. He had a lot of issues until 43, when he was honorably discharged, found unfit for duty. It's just another one of those... <laughs> Like I just talked about with Muddy Waters, you aren't gonna make it in the military back then as a black man. You are going to be abused until you are unable to handle it anymore or you end up dead in a war. But he was able to get out with an honorable discharge, which is about as good as it was gonna get back then for a black man. And now he's, this is 43. I think I already said that, sorry. Now he's back south. I believe he ended up in Arkansas after the military and he's trying to play music. That's where his heart is. That's what he wants to do. So that's where he goes to play music. One of the main ways that these two completely contrasted each other, they were complete opposites of the spectrum, is the way that they were with women. And this will equate to a lot of other things in their life. A lot of their approach to things and a lot of their story ends up very much contrasting the other's approach and the other's story. One of the first things that you see is their personal life, the way that they deal with women. So. Muddy Waters is an infamous womanizer. In the book, The Life and Times of Muddy Waters Can't Be Satisfied, there is a sentence that says, he was a consummate, relentless, and indefatigable womanizer. And that was nothing less than a driving force in his life. I'm not kidding when I say, I've mentioned it a couple times in this. So he sings a lot about sex. He talked a lot about sex. That was, <laughs> women was what he wanted. That was his goal in life. His goal in life was women. And how you got women was, how he got women was playing songs. I don't, stop me if you've heard this one, but young boy sees that women scream and swoon and fall in love with musician. Young boy picks up guitar, young boy starts trying to write music. Uh, this is a fairly common thing that happens every now and then. Maybe you've heard of the likes of the hundreds and thousands of people that have gone on to do the same things. That was him, and it got him in trouble a lot of times. It made him maybe not the best person, but it was him. That's just who he was. Howlin' Wolf was notoriously, fiercely faithful to his wife. Howlin' Wolf married Lily Handley in 1964-76 and was incredibly loyal to her, incredibly proud of her. Um, he was a very, very good husband. He got married to her in 64 and was married to her until he died in 76. He eventually died at 65 of oh, a lot of stuff. He had kidneys failing him. He ended up, when he went in to get a kidney surgery, they ended up finding a tumor. He had heart failure. He had kidney disease. It was pretty much a lot of just everything you can imagine was being thrown at him. Whereas Muddy Waters lived until 83, and he had heart problems too, heart failure. I think he died in his sleep, but the contrast of how they dealt with women, which 
I guess you could see it going either way. I always thought, it, you know, I'd always picture Howlin' Wolf was kind of the crazy one. He was the one that was herky-jerky on stage and stuff like that. Muddy Waters was very cool and collected, and uh, Muddy Waters was everything that John Mayer wishes he is, I guess, is how you'd want to put that. But you do see that, the contrast and how they dealt with the, the women in their popularity in a lot of other aspects of their life. Okay, so Howlin' Wolf, out of the army, starting music up again. But at this time, Muddy Waters has a pretty deep head start. By the time it's the early 40s and Howlin' Wolf is out of the getting out of the army, uh, just trying to figure it out in Arkansas, at this point Muddy Waters has made it to Chicago and he's doing pretty well. And one of the reasons that he's doing pretty well, which we'll talk about both of them now, is their bands. Now, they both had great musicians in their bands. Muddy Waters also had some pretty good connections at this time in Chicago. One of the things that we talked about in the pre-1964 episode, Evil and I did, if you haven't listened to that, go listen. It's very interesting. We didn't do any, there was no historical effort put into that. It was really just a member berries episode. It was really just a, not member berries. We didn't, it's not like we grew up in this time or anything like that, but it was a lot of, have you heard this album? It is so amazing. Why hasn't everybody been listening to this kind of stuff? It's basically an hour of this artist is amazing. I wish I could have lived at this time to see them. But one of the people that evil brought up is Big Bill Brunzi, who was this huge blues man in Chicago. And when Muddy Waters got there in the early 40s, Muddy Waters got to open for him. Uh, one of Muddy Waters' first recordings ever was actually just a compilation of him doing Big Bill Brunzi songs. So thanks to that and a few other things that he was getting to do, he already had a name in Chicago. By 46, he was recording under Columbia Records. And that, that recording was fine. It didn't do great. It really wasn't until about a year later or so when Chess Records found him. Now, you've heard us talk about Chess Records a couple times when we talked about Chuck Berry. We've really anything blues, anything Motown, anything Chicago related in those 30s and those 40s and those 50s, Chess Records is going to be brought up. That was the record company that was paying attention to this and knew that it was marketable and it was going to be big. When Chess Records got with Muddy Waters and got together to record stuff with him, this is when he puts together his songs like Gypsy Woman and Can't Be Satisfied. Can't Be Satisfied is the big one. Can't Be Satisfied, he re-recorded a couple times. It's also the name of his book. Robert Gordon was the writer. Uh, Robert Gordon was just a historian that did a lot of research and wrote a book on Muddy Waters. But this is when this is when Muddy Waters got two very very big helping hands. And the helping hands were two of the people that ended up in his band in Jimmy Rogers, who was another guitar player, who was an excellent guitar player. He also had Elga Edmonds on the drums, who was awesome. He had a great piano player too, Otis Band. That's right, Otis Band. But one of the big ones one of the very, very big ones was little Walter Jacobs who played the harmonica. Now, this is one other piece of innovation that seems so simple to us, but back then it wasn't. And that is bringing in electric instruments to this. What originated as a necessity, once again, a necessity. Muddy Waters kind of jerry-rigged his way into an electric guitar with a cheap amp when he was in Chicago, just as that was the only way. This is 40s, 30s Chicago. This is hustle and bustle up to the 10th degree, as loud as it can possibly be. He had to figure out a way just for people to even be able to hear his guitar playing. And what he ends up with is this kind of gritty electric sound. Now, when he brings in little Walter Jacobs, Little Walter Jacobs essentially does the same thing but with harmonica. So whenever you hear that slightly distorted, mic'd out harmonica that you hear in blues, quintessential blues, right? You are hearing Little Walter Jacobs. Little Walter Jacobs is the one that started that, started it with Muddy Waters, and bam, they're on the scene. They've got this gritty electric guitar. They've got this gritty electric harmonica in the background that is just amazing. And they've got songs like Hoochie Coochie Man and I'm Ready. And these songs that, you know, typically, like I said about Howlin' Wolf, where a lot of the blues was blues. It was sad. It was dark. It was dancing music with these dark undertones. 
Muddy Waters wasn't like that. Muddy Waters was singing about how he's the man, and I am Muddy Waters, and watch out for Muddy Waters, and he was singing about sex a lot. People found it refreshing, happy, easy to dance to, fun to have at a bar, and there you go. Meanwhile, you have Howlin' Wolf, who Howlin' Wolf was... His singing was a lot grittier, a lot dirtier, a lot louder. I personally like Howlin' Wolf's voice way more just because it's so unique and it's so in your face, which is the way that Howlin' Wolf was. Howlin' Wolf didn't really get big, big. He didn't really form a band that ended up doing really well until like 48. So this was, you know, two, three years after Muddy Waters had been well-established. In fact... When Howlin' Wolf made it to Chicago, the first person he stayed with, the person that he stayed with when he got to Chicago, Muddy Waters. They were friends. He lived, they lived together. He lived with him while he was getting stuff figured out in Chicago. And I think there's, you know, this is all who knows, but I think that is when Howlin' Wolf saw Muddy Waters and said, that's what I've been wanting to be. That's what I'm gonna be. I'm coming after that crown. And I think that's where this whole rivalry was built. For Howlin' Wolf, his real initial success, his real first actual taste of success didn't come until Ike Turner. Yes, the Ike Turner. We're talking Ike and Tina Turner. Ike Turner was 19 years old at this point. He was a 19-year-old scout for Modern Records that because... If you know the story of Ike Turner, he was one of the most brilliant musical minds ever from the time he was a little kid. He was a scout and he heard Howlin' Wolf and he brought him directly to Modern Records and said, this is what the world has been waiting for right here. This is what you need. Now, Howlin' Wolf had a really great band too. He really, the only two people that were consistently in the band were Willie Johnson and Pat Hare. Pat Hare, they were both singers, uh, or sorry, they were both guitar players. Pat Hare is more of a singer-songwriter type. But it was really just more about him. It was more about Howlin' Wolf. It was about coming in and seeing this guy dripping sweat and screaming into the mic and veins popping out everywhere. And he's just so, just watch a video of him perform and he's jerky and he can't sit still and he's, it's like nothing you've ever seen. As Howlin' Wolf gets bigger, he does have newer members join. The most prominent one that people will know besides him would be Hubert Sumlin. Hubert Sumlin is just this amazing, amazing guitar player that, because, so where Muddy Waters was this real innovative guitar player and a beautiful singer, he was much more known as just a, people loved listening to his guitar sound. Howlin' Wolf, it was much more a voice thing. So when Howlin' Wolf was able to bring on Sumlin, that was a big deal. Sumlin was the perfect backing for Howlin' Wolf's voice. And now they both have their bands, they both have their stardom. Muddy Waters had a bigger name early, but at this point in time, they're both in Chicago, they both have who they need, and they are both not only ready to go, they already have their names, and here we are. So a couple cool things about their bands, once they hit the 50s and they are regulars, they're playing everywhere in Chicago. Howlin' Wolf, by early 50s, builds this reputation with his band, traveling around doing recordings. He has this reputation of having these fiercely loyal band members and attracting the best musicians to his band. And that is because he is one of the first band leaders that actually pays his band. Like he pays them really, really good salaries, which was not done at this point. He pays them like it's not a, uh, hey, once we get on tour, I'll get you your money sort of thing. No, he pays them. He pays, he, they have regular paychecks. They have insurance. They have 401ks. This is unheard of in band members, and it is why his band members were so loyal. They were all about Howlin' Wolf, so he was doing it right. Now, Muddy Waters' band, what was really cool about them, and they had been doing this before, you know, Howlin' Wolf wasn't really established until like 1950 as far as Chicago and everything's concerned. And at this time, Muddy Waters' band was not only established, but 
They were called the headhunters. And they were called the headhunters because they would scour Chicago everywhere. They would go to clubs and they would find clubs where other bands were playing. And then they would play too. They would be put on the bill because they were the biggest band in Chicago. And they would blow that other band out of the water. So they were extremely aggressive. They were out for everybody's money. They didn't want any other bands in the area. They wanted to be it. The idea of a band being called the Headhunters, just going out and just outplaying everybody, I, there's just something about that I love so much. It's a little evil, it's very intimidating, it's really, really freaking awesome. And at this point in time, the rivalry has kind of begun. The lore is that the rivalry all started because there was this big time player back then in Chicago named Willie Dixon who did a ton of songwriting. He wrote for everybody and he wrote a lot of the big time songs back then. He wrote Hoochie Coochie Man for Muddy Waters. He wrote for Bo Diddley. He wrote for a lot of people. And Helen Wolf was starting to get mad because Willie Dixon was writing for both of them and and Helen Wolf accused Willie Dixon of writing much better songs for Muddy Waters purposefully so Muddy Waters could stay bigger. Muddy Waters was there first and he wanted him to be bigger. This is obviously all hearsay and I who knows if it's true or not, but Helen Wolf very negatively reacting to that was one of the big primary starts of their rivalry. But in this point in time, this is when both of them, but specifically Muddy Waters, was touring Europe with Otis Spann, who here's another musician that was regarded as a blues founder. The This tour, this whatever, 58, I think it was around 58 tour, was where you'd see a lot of attention paid by the Rolling Stones and those sort of people that would forever fall in love with them. This is where slide guitar and Dixie jazz and all this stuff just made its way into the mainstream. This was officially, you know, 1960 through 1962, whatever you want to call it. This was officially when the blues revival, the legit blues revival happened where black blues musicians, they found the white audience. And this was much in thanks to people like Chubby Checker, who, by the way, Chubby Checker, sorry, Chuck Berry, who, by the way, Muddy Waters was the one that told Chess Records. Uh, Muddy Waters was the one that saw Chuck Berry play, perform, and say, this guy, this is the guy you need to sign. It was also the one that said that Helen Wolf was going to be a big deal. Like, Muddy Waters had the vision, but he was the one that said Chuck Berry was the guy you need to sign. You know, we did an episode on Chuck Berry. We did uh, Chuck Berry on top, which love it or hate it or whatever you want to call it. You know, we had some issues doing that episode. <laughs> but the bottom line is, is Chuck Berry is probably the most prominent character in regards to rock and roll that there is. And Muddy Waters was the one that told them they need to sign it. Muddy Waters, in spite of himself, knowing that this guy was going to be the big seller, told them to do it and they did it. And then in the 60s, Helen Wolf came on as well and was part of that blues revival. And I do believe that one of the main reasons that Helen Wolf is not remembered as much as Muddy Waters is because Helen Wolf didn't have too much else left in the tank. Once it got to the late 60s, early 70s, Helen Wolf kind of did his own thing. His, his last album was The Backdoor Wolf in 1973 and it wasn't the best, and that was really all we had of Helen Wolf. Whereas Muddy Waters, Muddy Waters had a really great resurgence in the 70s and the early 80s, and he came on with a lot of really good 70s stuff, and, and these genuine blues tracks really held sway. This is where we get the big Muddy Waters prominence over Helen Wolf, and that is basically the 70s, the remembrance. The early 70s, Muddy Waters won his first Grammy, which obviously was a big deal. The mid 70s, he was still doing a bunch of stuff. He came out with a 1978 album, I'm Ready, which had the other version of Manish Boy, which is a massive, massive deal. That is 
one of his bigger songs, which we've talked about many times. Evil and I have talked about how it might be the best song ever written. I don't know. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. It might be the best song ever written. He was getting all of his accolades in Chicago, later career stuff. And that's completely understandable. And the point being is that they both, I feel they both equate equally to each other as far as meaning and what they did for rock and roll. They were blues artists not knowing that they were going to found a style of music, and they did. Thanks to them, we have bands like the Rolling Stones who just wanted to be them, and Led Zeppelin who just wanted to be them, and the Beatles who just wanted to be them. And I leave it to you to decide whether that's right or wrong. I'm okay with it. You know, I love the, I love Led Zeppelin, but I also acknowledge that Led Zeppelin stole a lot of shit. You know, I've, I've, I've had a couple conversations with Evil about it, how it's a thing. You have to acknowledge it. And I feel like that's kind of what we're doing in this season. I like that that's not what this, I don't feel that that's what this episode became about. I feel like this episode became about two guys with a healthy rapport that battled. It's the, it's the healthy rivalry. Bird Johnson. I don't know what to equate it to in music. David Lee Roth, Michael Stipe. It's, I'm just kidding on that one. Uh, It's these two. It's so funny because I completely get it. I completely get that in the day in the time in Chicago. It was so cutthroat. You look at two godly beings like Muddy Waters and Helen Wolf and you think, well, <laughs> you both can exist in the same ecosystem. And I can see where it would have been a problem, especially with Muddy Waters and a group like the Headhunters who are specifically aiming at making sure that that is not so. But the bottom line is, is that Helen Wolf was a completely different entity from Muddy Waters in a beautiful way. I love both of them personally. I think they both bring something completely different to the table. Helen Wolf bringing that raw grit that you want and Muddy Waters bringing that traditional soul will become a B.B. King style thing. They are both perfection to me and you don't have to pick you can have both and i love that i hope that after listening to this you go listen to both of them moaning in the moonlight by howlin wolf is one of my favorite albums go listen to it if you want to catch muddy waters there's there's really anything it doesn't matter like we talked about in the rolling stone albums we talked about the anthology which is spectacular that's not a vinyl that's a cd it's a compilation that came out in like the 2000s with a bunch of different music in it but you can just grab anything from muddy waters grab hard again that's a late 70s one that has a manish boy that we've talked about I have a couple. You are not going to pick up a Muddy Waters that you aren't happy with. You are not going to pick up a Howlin' Wolf that you aren't happy with. Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf did not found blues or rock. You can go back forever. You can keep going back and keep going back. But these are the two that I'm probably going to stop at. And I'm happy with it. I am in awe of these two gentlemen. I think that they deserve all of our accolades. I think they deserve to be known as the founders of what people like me listening to this podcast worship. I think it is incredible that somebody from the 1920s, somebody born in 1913 on a plantation, you can directly correlate a band coming out now Succeeding because of him is just, I think that needs to be respected to an umph degree. And I guess that's it. Versecourseverse.com at Versecourseverse pod. Look, thank you very much 
for hanging with me for these. It means a lot. I hope you stick around for the next episode because the next episode is going to be awesome. I'm doing an album exchange. The album exchange is a, uh, it includes a specific band because it is a preparation for an interview. How about that? That is exciting. Go listen to Muddy Waters. Go listen to Helen Wolf. Go just buy an album or two from either one. Even if you if you're not if you don't give a shit about their discography, whatever, grab an album, put it on and listen to it. You're I promise you you are not going to be disappointed. You guys are all awesome to me, as you know. We'll see you next week. Good night and good luck. <laughs>